Hey, this is Randy Gage, and you're listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Work From Home Show. I'm Naresh Vissa, and today we have Randy Gage on with us, of course, with my co-host, Adam Schrader. And Randy is the author of 13 books that have been translated into 25 languages, including several New York Times bestsellers. One of his most popular books, actually, let's let's read a few of his most popular books. Let's read the titles here. One of them is Risky is the New Safe, The Rules Have Changed. The other book is Why You're Dumb, Sick and Broke, and How to Get Smart, Healthy and Rich. So both of those books, I think, are very relevant to the work-from-home environment and post-pandemic environment. Also, his books, Direct Selling Success from Amway to Zombies and Mad Genius, A Manifesto for Entrepreneurs. Randy has spoken to more than 2 million people across more than 50 countries, and he is a member of both the Speakers Hall of Fame and the Direct Selling Hall of Fame. He is host of the Power Prosperity podcast. So without further ado, Randy Gage, welcome to the Work From Home show. Hey, great to be on with you guys. Let's start with your journey because I was reading your bio and I didn't include this because it's not a part of your title, but you were a juvenile delinquent. Tell us about your childhood, your teenage years, and how you took those experiences and your upbringing to become one of the world's most famous motivational speakers? Well, I was a teenage alcoholic and a teenage drug addict. So when you are those things, you usually make a lot of really poor choices. And we can definitely say I did that. Uh, So at 15, I was in jail for armed robbery and burglary. And uh, I was blessed that there were people who believed in me and a public defender who believed in me and then a judge who believed in me and gave me probation. And so, yeah, I got another shot. And so that made a huge difference for me. I, I, you know, I'd love to say I snapped my fingers and turned everything around instantly, but that wouldn't be true. (laughs) It took me some time to figure things out, but mainly, you know, the most important thing is I, I had another shot and I took it. Now, were you cutting class or did you just drop out of school? What were your parents doing during this time? So I was raised by a single mom who was raising three kids by herself, uh, selling Avon door to door is what she did. So she was, you know, she wasn't there when we came home from school. She, you know, we fixed ourselves cereal in the morning and we went to school and then came home and you know, watch Star Trek and, you know, hung out at the pinball arcade or the bowling alley or whatever. And um, so, and then I was actually expelled from high school when uh, that happened. When I went to jail, they were like, you know what, just don't come back. (laughs) We don't need to see you anymore. (laughs) Really helping with your future. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it was, you know, and I'm an older guy, right? So this is back in the day. So we didn't quite view rehabilitation and counseling and how to help at-risk youth probably with the level of enlightenment we might today. 
but you know, I, I made it through anyway. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit, you, one of the things you say is there are random events, but no random lives. Um, can you talk about how you were, I mean, you had events going on that weren't random in your case, but you managed to reinvent your life. Can you tell a little bit about what you mean by that saying and then how you were able to kind of change the direction that you were going? Yeah. Along the way you discover, I, I think we, most of us start out as victims or see ourselves as victims. And then sometimes as in my case, I became a professional victim, right? Where nothing was my thought. It was, you know, we like to blame it on the president and the economy and our ex-wife and uh, our cheap boss and, you know, how we were raised. And But at some point, you either go down the rabbit hole of professional victim and you live your life as a victim the rest of your life, or you decide, I don't want to be a victim anymore. I want to be a victor. I want to get over this thing. And uh, you mentioned 13 books. I actually have a 14th book out now that just came out called Radical Rebirth. And that's kind of the, it chronicles the journey that I went through where at some point you, 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 if you're really a victim like I was, at some point you say, I just don't want to live this way anymore. And um, one of the catalysts of this new book, although I never knew it, but this was years ago, I was in a, uh, the Miami airport Marriott, um, in a cheesy room overlooking a dumpster and writing my suicide journal one Christmas Eve, which was, it wasn't even a suicide note to the outside world. It was just like a journal to myself on, you know, why I just shouldn't even keep on living how long ago was this oh it's probably 20 some years okay and um i was really fortunate i was working with a therapist and he called me back and kind of talked me down and um but the thing i kind of learned going through that horrific experience was i didn't have to kill myself I, I just had to kill off the parts of me that I didn't like, that I hated. And that's kind of what Radical Rebirth, the new book, is about, is you know how you reinvent yourself and that we all have that opportunity to do that. And obviously COVID-19 has been the perfect example of that. All of you, right? Your people were probably working from home before the pandemic, right? But you probably picked up a lot of new listeners who are working from home now. Post no, no, we actually got started the week of. Uh, I shouldn't say the week of, but in late March 2020, mm-hmm. and we started the show because of the pandemic because oh, okay. we knew that work from home would become not completely permanent, but it would definitely overtake people's lives and the work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, but that's such a good example of how the whole world has had to adapt, right? And that's what life is about. We we see people on TV, you know, they get interviewed on the Jimmy Kimmel show, and we're like, wow, their life is so perfect. They're rich, and they're famous, and they're sexy. And But actually, everybody has challenges. Just some of us don't see them, right? And 
all of us have things about ourselves we don't like. All of us have things we could do to become a higher version of ourselves. And that's really what my work's been about for the last 25, 30 years is how do you recreate yourself? How do you come out of adversity? How do you overcome that? How do you become the person you, you're capable of becoming? Well, going back to, you left off at the juvenile delinquency, um, but you didn't answer how you became one of the world's most famous and motivational speakers. One thing you touched on is what I call weapons of mass distraction. And weapons of mass distraction are kind of like what you mentioned, you know, who is the president, who's in, who's your local mayor, who who won the, the sports game last night, who won the championship those are, I think, ultimate weapons of mass distraction. So I'd love to hear your story about how you actually went. You got expelled from high school. I don't even know where you go if you get expelled from high school. Did they have a juvenile delinquency school? How did you turn things around? And was it a weapon of mass distraction? Was it uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society or government assistance that uh, gave you the leg up and put you where you are today? Well, so I got, there was a, a test school being done. This was in Madison, Wisconsin, where I was raised. And they were uh, uh, experimenting with this school called the School Without Walls. That they had a school and there were teachers and advisors there. But like, if you wanted to be an electrician, then you would go and work with a, an electrician. Or if you wanted to work with a plumber, you would do that or uh, at a hospital. And so it was an experimental thing. And I did that for, I don't know, six months or something. But Would you I get actually, paid or was it like a free? No, you were just like an intern learning about whatever you wanted to study. And um, I ended up, you know, I, I had people who offered me jobs. I was just working in restaurants, right? So I went back to working in restaurants. And then I was working at Red Lobster. And then I was working at Howard Johnson's. And... Uh, became a, a manager trainee. And the interesting thing was I had lied about my age to work for Red Lobster because they served alcohol and I wanted to be a waiter. They opened this new Red Lobster in town. So I went and applied and they never back in those, you know, we didn't have the internet or things like that to check on people. They just took me at my word. So I was 16 years old and I was serving alcohol. And then I got a part-time job as a grill cook on the midnight shift at Howard Johnson. And they liked my work. And then they made me a manager trainee. And then I was, a, and of course, I had to tell them the same age I had told Red Lobster because I didn't know if one would talk to the other. So I lied about my age with them. And they made me an assistant manager. And then they made me a manager. So I was running a store you know, a restaurant that was doing probably three quarters of a million dollars a year. And I was 17 years old, but they thought I was 20, of course. And uh, so I was working hard, playing by the rules. And then my dream was, you know, one day I would open my own restaurant, you know, and because you quickly find out, I think, you know, as, as a manager, I realized, man, I have waiters and waitresses who make more than I do because they get tips and they work 40 hours and they go home. 
I'm working 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week. I've got a straight salary. Uh, and I thought, you know, ultimately I need to open my own place. And um, I did. My Probably when I was like 20, I opened a restaurant and failed miserably at it because I didn't have enough money, right? I tried to bootstrap it with my old assistant manager. We went in together on that. Uh, and so that was a failure, but I learned from it. And along the way, I got introduced to direct selling. Uh, and I thought that made sense because that had leverage. I had always done all these restaurant jobs, trading hours for money. And this idea of, uh, you know, building a direct selling team and getting residual income uh, that really appealed to me. And so I did that. And I actually made a lot of money. I made millions of dollars in direct selling. Um, and I attribute a lot of that to my success and the fact that kind of in the direct selling business, you're, you're totally about motivation and personal development and personal growth. It's kind of baked in the cake in that business. And so I was exposed to books like Think and Grow Rich and As a Man Thinketh and The Magic of Thinking Big. And that, you know, I didn't even know books like that existed, right? I grew up reading Hardy Boys novels and Nancy Drew and Agatha Christie mysteries. And to find out there was these books like this about how to grow as a person, this was Huge breakthrough for me, you know, in seminars and uh, then, you know, cassette albums and then, you know, DVDs later and, you know, CDs and all of that. Uh, but so that really transformed me. And, and, you know, I had to learn a lot of lessons along the way. But that was kind of the, the catalyst was becoming an entrepreneur. And, 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 of course, a direct selling business is a home-based business. You, you don't have an office. You don't have a boss. You have to learn self-discipline and 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 really work on your your business every day if you want to be successful well those books that you brought up think and grow rich uh you didn't mention how to win friends and influence or really anything by dale carnegie that was another one for sure yeah yeah that that's definitely a part of the group my favorite book which came out much later than these other ones and we've talked about this extensively on the show that's the seven habits of highly effective people mm -hmm. by stephen covey but anyway the, the point i'm making here is or it's not really a point i'm just it's an observation i've never met anybody who's read these books who lives in like abject poverty i've never met anybody who's read these books and who has constantly struggled through life. There's just, I'm not saying that if you're in poverty right now, or if you are struggling through life, read these books and everything's gonna be solved. But uh, if there are three or four books that you must read, forget about everything else. Forget, like you said, Nancy Drew and the American Girl series and whatever they make you read in, in schools. If there are three or four books that you must read to succeed in life, to uh, succeed, I don't want to say succeed in business, but to earn a living, to live more happily, it would be books like these. 
uh, it doesn't have to be the exact books, but books like How to Win Friends and Influence People or Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill or Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or anything by Jim Rohn or um, even some of Tony Robbins. Uh, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, not only there's uh, a lot of people aren't readers today, unfortunately, and I wish they would be. I think they were their lives would be so much more enriched. And I would suggest just read what you love to get started. If that will get you started, even if it's Robert Ludlum spy thrillers, right? If you read what you love until you develop that love for reading, then you can, and some people have to go through that. And if not, I mean, today we have podcasts and blogs that, and, and the, if you curate your social media the right way, it could be really empowering. Like people are always bitching and moaning, oh man, my Twitter feed. I'm like, well, you chose to follow those people. You know, why don't you? <laughs> you chose to get you, on Twitter. Right. <laughs> Uh, and your Facebook feed, those are the people you asked, sent friend requests to or accepted their friend requests. So just look at that, right? One of the things that I think growth and enlightenment takes place is there are certain people you recognize. I need to reduce the amount of time I spend with them. And there's some people you recognize. I need to remove, I need to eliminate them from my life. They're so toxic and dangerous to my mental health or my and or my physical health that I need to curate the you know the 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 people and of course you'd mentioned Jim Rohn uh he used to say your income will be the average income of the five people you hang out with and I would take that a step further and I would say your health your relationships your marriage all of those things will be the median of the people that you spend the most time with. So when you get mindful about that, you, you very early on, you, you mentioned I, cause I actually just did a blog on this where I said, you know, there are no random, you know, there are random occurrences, but there are no random lives. Okay. If a meteorite happens to land on your Bentley continental GT, that's a random event. But if next week another meteorite lands on your Lambo <laughs> and the week after that another meteorite lands on your Ferrari, well, we're going to have to say <laughs> you might be doing something to manifest that, right? Because the, that can't happen without you having some influence on that. And that can piss people off because, again, it, if we can say it's my ex-wife or my ex-husband and it's my chief boss and it's Donald Trump and it's whoever, then I don't have to take any personal responsibility. I can just, I'm a victim. I'm working so hard. And I'm always a day late and a dollar short. If it wasn't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. All the good guys are married and or gay. You know, we, we just buy into these victim stories. And it's terrible. It's, yeah. It's and terrible. at some point you say, hey, am, what is my role in this to be a co-creator? Yeah. When, when everyone else is a jerk, maybe you need to look in the mirror and see if you're the jerk. Kind of what I'm getting yeah, at. I mean, there, there, there is no random lives. Yeah. There are random accidents. But if your life 
and I'm just, and I'm not saying this because I was born a rich guy with a silver spoon in my ho- mouth and I have no empathy. I was a professional victim for 30 years, the first 30 years of my life. I know what it is to get your power disconnected. I know what it is to live on $7,000 a year. I know what it is to roll up $2 worth of pennies and, and put gas in your car. I've lived all those things. And I will be the first to tell you that when your life sucks, you're not just a random victim. You are, sometimes we get emotional payoffs for being a victim, right? There's, that's why people stay in abusive relationships sometimes. That's why they stay in addictive relationships sometimes. That's why they, you know, for me, I kept manifesting trauma and drama and failures and illness and business failures because I was an emotional cripple, right? I, I, I couldn't accept love. I had such a low self-esteem, such low self-worth. So because I couldn't accept love, I substituted it with sympathy and attention. And so if we met for the first time and we were having a drink or having lunch or talking at a party, I would regale you with all of the drama and trauma that's been going on in my life that week, right? Because that would make you feel sorry for me and you would give me sympathy, you would give me attention. And in my, so that was an emotional payoff. If you would have asked me, Randy, what are you doing to to manifest all this stuff? I would have, you know, recoiled and told you you were a, you know, heartless bastard and why you don't understand I'm just an innocent victim. But one of the greatest gifts I had was a mentor asked me that very question. He said, have you given any thought? to what you might be doing to manifest all this stuff. And that, I'm telling you, I was grinding my molars. I was so upset for like three weeks. But then I had to say, okay, I've been in 11 negative dysfunctional relationships in a row. I've had a series of physical health challenges. I've had a couple business failures. Is there one person who was always at the scene of the crime, (laughs) right? And I didn't like the answer to that question, but that was the question I needed to ask. You talked about how you were like writing your suicide journal and then you realized you could you could just, you know, kill off the parts of yourself. You didn't like there. How did you make that turn? Because, you know, we obviously, there are some people listening who don't like parts of themselves or don't like the way their life is moving down. What are some of kind of like the first steps that you've seen people take or that you took that helped you come out of that and just start kind of eliminating the parts of yourself that needed to be eliminated to make your life better? Yeah, I'm glad you asked this question because that's what drove me to write that last book because I really do believe there is a formula and I believe you can reverse engineer the formula to find out how did you get to this life that, and I, I get for some people listening, your life doesn't suck. You know, you're, it's pretty good. You got a job, you got a home, you got people who love you, you know, you're pretty healthy, but you just crave more. You believe you're capable to do, have, or become more. So sometimes we're running away from this old version of ourselves that we hate and we need to kill off, 
right? And sometimes we're just running toward a higher version of ourself that we want to become. So it could be either way, but it's still the same formula because what we've got to do is go back and find our core foundational beliefs. And I broke them down in that book into seven main areas, right? Like money and success, relationships and marriage, health and wellness, sex and sexuality, uh, work and career, right? So you have these main areas and you have core foundational beliefs that you developed when you were a kid. Core beliefs about money, uh, God and religion is another one of the categories. So the thing that shocked people and when they read the Radical Rebirth book is that they understand. I, I prosecute the case and show them how they came to the beliefs they have when they were five, six, seven years old. Right. So if you grew up and your parents were saying money doesn't grow on trees, you know, we don't have money for that. You we may not be rich, but at least we're honest. Your core belief about money was set before you were seven. So you've got a core foundational belief that money is bad. Rich people are evil. It's spiritual to be poor. To be a, a successful in your career, you've got to be a bad parent. To have a successful company, you've got to exploit the workers and plunder the environment. Those are core foundational beliefs. They're mind viruses. They literally are memes. They literally are mind viruses in your subconscious mind. And so on your conscious level, you say, yeah, I want to get that promotion. Yeah, I want to start this business. Yes, I would like to be wealthy and be able to take care of my family better. But your subconscious programming is money is bad, rich people are evil, and it's going to cause you to self-sabotage. So same thing in relationships. If your mother and father grew up bickering with each other, if one of them was abusive to the other, if one of them cheated on the other, your core belief about relationships was probably set before you had your first one. You know, sex and sexuality, when you taught that sex is dirty and do it in the dark and don't talk about it. Right? So you probably had guilt <laughs> issues about sex before you even reached puberty. Right. So now people are saying, are you suggesting that I'm self-sabotaging myself at 30 years old or 40 years old because of a, a belief I developed when I was six or seven or eight? And I'm saying, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So the, the, the process that you asked about, Adam, is we've got to uncover those core beliefs. And then we've got to recognize what's the programming that gave us those beliefs. So, um, you know, if money is bad, rich people. Well, I one of the things I do in the book that blows people's mind is I say, here, let's look at all of the pop culture for whatever your generation is, you could be a baby boomer like me. You could be a millennial or a global who's just starting out. And I can show you the TV shows, the movies, the books, the operas, the plays, the blogs, the podcasts, whatever, and show you this subliminal programming that is money is bad, rich, whatever it may be. And I can go back to Beverly Hillbillies and MASH 
and Beverly Hills 90210 and go to Dallas and Dynasty and all the way up to today to Game of Thrones and Succession and Billions, no matter what generation it is. So I can show you, we can show you the programming that creates the belief and then the beliefs that are created. And then, of course, the self-sabotage those beliefs are going to cause you to do, which you don't even know you're doing. So we have to go back. When I say we reverse engineer the process, we go back and we change the program. So now if we take out that new John Grisham thriller and we replace it with Think and Grow Rich, we've just changed the programming. So we're going to change the beliefs that are created with the program. Because once you have a core belief, you're going to set a certain vision based on that belief. It's going to be a positive vision. It's going to be a neutral vision. Or for most people, it's going to be a negative vision. And when you have a negative vision, what are you going to do? You're going to do negative daily actions, negative habits. When you have a positive vision, you do positive daily actions. You decide, oh, I'm going to get enough rest. I'm going to drink and eat clean. I'm going to get exercise. You know, I'm not going to get addicted to crazy drugs. So, but those, you don't just say, hey, I'm not going to get addicted to crazy drugs or, hey, I'm going to eat healthy. That only happens if you have a core belief that you're supposed to be healthy and happy, that you're supposed to be successful, that it's okay to be successful. So that's really the process I'm going through in the book is, is how do we change the programming. Programming changes the beliefs. Beliefs change the vision. The vision changes the daily action. And the daily actions are what set your life. That's what determines whether you're successful or not, if you're poor or wealthy. Because we like to think we create our destiny. But the truth is we create our daily habits and then our daily habits create our destiny. Before, when I, whenever I was younger, I'd never heard of Jim Rohn, Napoleon Hill, any of those guys. And I noticed, um, and it was probably around the time I met my wife, you know, my parents worked jobs where they were probably making like, you know, between 30 and $50,000 a year each. And the idea, I mean, I, I went to college, but the idea that I would get a job that paid six figures wasn't even in my mindset. Like the jobs that I was looking at were around the same price as what they were, you know, around the same wage as what they were earning. Um, you know, and it was the exact opposite way with, um, with my wife says her, her dad made good money. And so she was looking at careers that had, you know, paid more money. And it was just the disparity, you know, of the mindset that I had coming in of, you know, you work a job and you'll get paid, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 is so different. You know, it's just one little shift and it leads you to think, Oh, I can also do these things. If I open up my mind to it, it just, I mean, I realized that is probably an early 20 year old and thought to myself, Oh, I should have done that when I was in college. <laughs> yeah. And you'd be amazed. I'm working with people all the time where I see this, where let's say the father was, you know, they, they idolized their father because he coached them and it was their little league coach and loved them and had a good home and everything. But he was a, a custodian or he was a coal miner or he was a whatever. And he 
sacrificed everything to give his son or daughter a college education and they get out of college and now some companies offering them 60 grand a year and a insurance plan and a you know paid vacation and a company car or whatever they'll sabotage that because they feel guilty about earning more than their father or their mother who they adore because they feel unworthy like my mother, you know, she cleaned toilets for 10 hours a day to raise yeah. me. And now this company wants to give me 50 grand a year in a corner office. They literally, and not even consciously, they don't even realize it. They have worthiness issues and they sabotage themselves because they feel guilty. Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. We we as a household make way more than my parents ever did. And it's awkward talking to them about anything financial at this point. It's just, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. just a strange conversation to have. Yeah. I see it all the time, all the time. Well, it's now I've got a, that got me thinking about my background and, and upbringing. And, um, I mean, Adam, you, you know, I, I didn't go to the, the cheapest private school in Houston by, <laughs> by any means. Uh, no. but <laughs> it, uh, the, my parents, so my mom didn't work. My father uh, did very, very well in the engineering oil and gas space. Um, and so he was just always about education and sending his two boys to the most competitive private schools that the city had to offer. So that's where we went throughout childhood mm -hmm. uh, until we graduated. And the reason why I bring this up is because I say my dad did well. Again, it's all relative, but you go to the high school that I went to and you, you go from thinking, okay, I'm, I come from a upper middle-class family who does pretty well to, uh, I was one of the poorest people in, in my high school. Um, if you take away the kids who are on scholarship, uh, mm -hmm. which, which I was not, uh, easily one of the, the five poorest kids in the class which for broad society, uh, society would just say, oh, boo-hoo, you know. Uh, but when you are growing up in that environment where everyone around you for their 16th birthday is getting BMWs and Lamborghinis and their grandparent is George H.W. Bush and their other uh, uncle is the CEO of ExxonMobil, then... Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, it hurts your self-esteem somewhat because then you start thinking, you know what, I'm actually poor. Like, I, I think I'm a yeah. poor person. But at the same time, being exposed to these people and their parents and you know, playing basketball with them, playing tennis with them and going to their houses, their big mansion of houses, uh, it got me really interested about business. That's, how, that's one of the reasons why I got interested in business and in success. Because uh, the people who my parents were hanging out with, they all had good jobs, good high-paying six-figure jobs and well-educated. But the people who I was going to school with, this was on a completely different level. I mean, now we're talking families worth tens of millions of dollars and money is just a piece of paper to them. Uh, that's that's what it was like. So uh, I kind of went to school outside the classroom just learning more about uh asking my friends, hey, you know, your dad's, uh, your, your grandfather brought Toyota to the United States. How did he do it? 
like why did he do it what is a, a typical day in your father's life uh, when he's mm-hmm. when he's at the office you know what does he do how does he spend his day um and just asking them these questions and learning about how rich people think and act yeah that's a really important point that and again somebody sometimes people get upset when i say this but wealthy people think differently than broke people healthy people think differently than sick people and happy people think differently than depressed people and i don't that's not a cute little saying it's physiologically it's scientifically true they think differently and because they think differently they they manifest different results and um it was really good for you Naresh that you got that you chose the path you did which is okay i could really turn bitter and jealous about this because god i thought i was doing pretty good and now i'm hanging out with these guys and you know they're you know it's the old, they're going to coachella and posting on instagram their private jet and they're you going around and they you know and you chose to say okay wait a minute what what can i learn what how do they think differently than i do and that's really where the the breakthroughs come from and even depressed people can learn from happy people and obviously i know there's physiological things and sometimes there's drugs are required or prescription or counseling or something i'm not being flippin or cavalier about this but i mean there really is a a depressed person will completely be oblivious to an opportunity that a, a happy person would jump on and notice right away right I, to me that was just the way i had this pessimistic view of life that if somebody brought me some amazing thing i'd immediately think what well, this was really good i would have heard about it before you got to get in early or you got to get in at the top or you got to know people or you got to have the right education i could talk my way out of anything that was going to help me because i didn't it didn't fit with my vision of myself so what you did was a really powerful thing which is to say okay what how is that how is that other half thinking and what are the lessons i can learn from the way they're thinking well you you bring up a good point about going the other way and and criticizing and complaining that you go to this prestigious wealthy private school which i knew so many people who were whining and complaining about the school and how good it was and how wealthy the kids were and like you said i decided not to go that route but those people i mean they had some some issues um which many of them did not work out and and it ended up hurting them in college whether they dropped out of college or in the job market but it it's almost like this this guilt that they had uh maybe somewhat what no nah, i wouldn't say it's similar to what adam said but it it's this guilt that they had of um of you know i don't deserve to be at this school i should be somewhere worse and on top of that there were a lot of kids who just felt like they didn't belong uh they were good enough to get into the school but they just felt you know i'm not this wealthy and look back then it's 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 changed now but back when i was in high school 
the fact of the matter is like over 95% of the school was white. And, and I wouldn't say race played an issue simply because there weren't too many minorities in the school. It was, it was a huge problem back then. And so that's why they started bringing in a lot of kids on, on scholarship. Uh, that's not a problem anymore, I think largely because the immigrants who came in, our parents, uh, they did well with us. And so people our age are now sending their kids to, to the, the rich, uh, wealthy, prestigious schools. But uh, going back to the mindset, I mean, I, I just have this one kid in my mind who would come into school every day. He was, he was a minority like me. He would come in every day and just complain and say, this is a terrible school. Everyone is white. Uh, this is, it, it's not a good place. It's not a good education. And he built up a reputation. It, it kind of, it, it was this repeating cycle because he would come in and rub off on people around him. And then they just wouldn't like him. They would say they would stay away from him. And then he would internalize, oh, the reason why people aren't treating me right, aren't, are staying away from me. They're not inviting me to the parties on the weekends. They're not, you know, no girl's going to go with me to prom. He started using racism as a justification uh, when there were other minorities who did very well, the guys on the football team and the baseball team and uh, other minorities who did very well in the classroom. They did very well socially. But this individual, and there, there were many other individuals like him who just had this hatred for the level of success and didn't want to learn those things and instead just wanted to whine and complain and uh, after he graduated, he just kind of disappeared. Well, two things jump out at what you're talking about, Naresh. Number one is people are shocked to discover that you can be rich and have a core belief that rich people are evil. You can be rich and feel guilty about it. And it happens. I see it a lot, right? Because even though your family might have been wealthy and you were provided for and it was all good, you still watch the same TV shows, movies, operas, plays, blogs, podcasts, and the subliminal programming of all of those is money is bad, rich people are evil, it's spiritual to be poor. So you feel guilty and you don't even know it. By the same token, there are gay people who are homophobic because they were raised in a Catholic, uh, let's say they're Mexican, they're raised in Mexico Catholic Catholicism, that if you're gay, you're born a sorry sinner and you're going to rot and burn in hell. So they grow up, they're 23, 25 years old, they recognize, wow, I'm gay, I'm lesbian. They come to grips with this and they don't even understand that they still have homophobia against themselves. It's latent homophobia. homophobia um, which is on a subconscious level, because again, they never went back to step one and say, what's the core foundational beliefs that what's that, that fuel my operating system. And until you do that, you, you, this stuff is below the water. It's the iceberg below the water and the subconscious mind. And until you find the limiting beliefs and blow them up, and replace them with empowering beliefs, you can't break the cycle. Now, you were talking earlier about how you went from like the, the restaurant business 
to, you know, learning, you know, and, and reading the, the books that you read that then led you into direct selling and working from home. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how you um, transitioned from, you know, tr- you know, running a restaurant to now motivating yourself working from home doing direct selling? Well, I was in direct selling and I noticed that a lot of people were struggling on how to be successful and that we had these first rank you achieved was called supervisor. And I noticed people had hard, most people never made it to the supervisor, the first rank. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a supervisor school. And once a month, we'll get together at the Holiday Inn, you know, bring five bucks for the donuts and the meeting room. And I'm going to teach how you become a supervisor. And I did it every month. And then people from other organizations started, hey, can we come in? Yeah, give me the five bucks for the donuts. And yeah. And then people started saying, hey, if we bought you a plane ticket and flew you to Chicago, could you teach this to our group up there? And people started flying in from New York and California. And so I had become a speaker or a trainer without even thinking about it. Right. I didn't even know that profession existed. And what happened was uh, I, I, the company I was working with got involved. There was a lawsuit. A lot of dirty laundry came to public. And I was like, wow, I, I can't work with these people. They're, they're not nice people. So I resigned. And I thought, hey, I, I trained my people in this company. I could train people in any company. So back in those days, you rented mailing lists and printed men. So I would go to... Uh, do Houston on Saturday and Dallas on Sunday. And I'd go and do a one day training for, you know, $47 and 186 people would show up. And, you know, and next thing I knew I was a professional speaker. (laughs) And next thing I knew I woke up one day and I'm in the speaker hall of fame and I've spoken to more than 200, 2 million people in more than 50 different countries. It was never anything I planned. It was just, I, I saw a need and I filled the need, which was, hey, I got to teach people the mechanics of the business. And so I did that for till I was like 40. Then I had my first midlife crisis right on schedule. And I said, that's it. I'm retiring. I'm going to just drink uh, out of a coconut and play softball and race my vipers. And that lasted about nine months. And I was going crazy. And a buddy of mine told me, you got to get back on the platform. You know, you're you're one of the greatest speakers in the world. you got to do that. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to go back and teach people how to get a prospect's phone number or that crap. You know, I would I want to talk about the prosperity stuff, the, the really important stuff, the programming and how you overcome it and how you turn your life around. And so I came back as a uh, speaker and then later as an author in how, in the personal development and personal growth space. And so it was just kind of a, uh, it wasn't a career path I ever planned out because I didn't know it existed, but it, I kind of backed into it by default just because that's where my passion was. I want to talk a little bit about the creative side. Can you tell us how we can unleash our creative genius and also how we can nurture our 
creative stimulation to create breakthrough ideas? Yeah, that's, um, I have a book called Mad Genius that is just totally about that. How do you think, how does Steve Jobs and Richard Branson and Mark Cuban, how do they think differently? Elon Musk is another one, how they think differently than other people do. And, um, but short answer to your question is, I think it starts with curiosity. I, you know, when you're curious about things, most people, they, when they find something they don't know about, they get furious. If you tell them something that they don't think is true, they get mad at you. Whereas if you would choose to be curious instead of furious and say, well, that's really fascinating. I think the sky is blue and Danny is telling me that the sky is orange. So why would he think that? Why, why does it, you know, I'm looking out the window, it sure seems blue to me. How could he seems like a sane person? He seems normal and he thinks it's orange. You know, what does he see that I don't see? And when you bring that kind of mindset, um, when you, uh, other thing, you've got to be willing to question the premise because there's a lot of bad premises around the world because of all these mind viruses that we were talking about a little earlier, right? So there's all these mind viruses about religion, doctrines and dogma. There's all these mind viruses about money. There's all these mind viruses about sex. There's all these mind viruses about health and wellness, right? If you, if you talk to the people in my family, you would just say, okay, well, in your 20s, you put on an extra five pounds. And then in your 30s, you put on an extra five or 10. And then your 40s, you put an extra five or 10. And then by the time you're 60, you're 50 pounds overweight. And you're taking 10 or 12 prescription medicine every day to stay alive. And that's what health is, right? That's a premise, right? That's If you looked at the vast majority of Americans, that's what they would believe, that by the time you're 40 or 50, you're probably 30 to 40 pounds overweight. You're taking your diabetic. You got high blood pressure. You got high cholesterol. You're on a bunch of prescriptions. Maybe they're cutting your leg off because you're diabetic. And that's normal. Well, that's a premise. I choose to question that premise and say, I don't think that's right. I don't think we're supposed to have 10 medications just to stay alive. I don't think we're supposed to add 10 pounds for every decade we're on the planet. I don't think we're supposed to, uh, you know, tell ourselves just because we drink at happy hour and the weekends that we're not an alcoholic. You know, when I get on a plane to go to a speech and it's a 7.30 a.m. flight out of San Diego and the guy next to me in first class has four Bloody Marys or four screwdrivers before the plane even takes off, <laughs> I'm saying, does he not, does he really think that's, you know, they say, well, if you'd like an eye opener, we have screwdrivers and Bloody Marys. I was like, are you really telling yourself that's an eye opener? You're not telling yourself, my God, I'm a really serious alcoholic. I mean, that I should open had... your eyes, but in a different way, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, that's, that's where creativity comes from is questioning the premise. When Elon Musk says, we need to be an interplanetary species. What he's doing is he's questioning the premise. 
which everybody on earth had, which is, hey, we were born on earth, we're raised on earth, we're supposed to live on earth. And Elon was the first guy who say, well, what if something happened to earth? Couldn't we have a backup plan? Is there some other options we should be thinking about? That's so, it starts with curiosity, then you gotta question the premise, and then be willing to do the critical thinking. And that's what takes you down the path of brilliant creativity, I believe. As far as direct selling goes, you've written a book on direct selling. You talked about your career in direct selling and how it jump-started, got you out of your rut. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, first off, what is direct selling and what opportunities do you think are there for people right now listening at home to direct sell? So direct selling is companies like Amway, Herbalife, New Skin, Pampered yep. Chef, Avon, all of these things where you become an independent representative. So you're repping their particular brand of product or service, home-based, such, I, I just think it's one of the best business models in the world because it's a model. Where else would somebody like me, who had been expelled from high school, uh, a high school, you know, no degrees, no connections, no money, where else am I? What, what, what else would have made me a multimillionaire? There's very few, right? There weren't a bunch of companies trying to recruit me and offer me primo jobs, right? If it was going to happen for me, I had to make it happen. And direct selling allows you to do that because it's a very minimal investment. You pick your hours, you choose the people you work with, great tax benefits, great travel opportunities. You work from home. And right now, it's it's just perfect because this is the direction the world is going into. Is every, You know, you talk to a millennial and they're like, I was just thinking, a friend of mine, his father just died. A typical... I hate to say it, but it's just a typical American story. He, he, he got diabetes. They amputated one leg. He got worse. They amputated the other leg. And he literally died of a heart attack a, a week ago. And it's just tragic, right? But I remember the other day I was reading the thing at the funeral home. And it said he was a, a loyal employee, a proud, loyal employee of whatever company for 40 years. And I thought, God, that, that'll never happen again. You know, if you talk to a millennial, it's like, hey, would you like to work for mobile for 40 years? They're like, they don't even want a job. They're like, well, no, I, I do some cat videos on YouTube and I monetize those and I'm an Instagram influencer and I drive Uber two days a week and then I make some crafts and I sell them on uh, eBay or, you know, whatever. <laughs> They're entrepreneurial, right? They, they believe in the idea of the side gig and direct selling is a really good side gig. And it's really good now in times of pandemic. It's, you know, it's forced direct selling to, to embrace mobile apps and e-commerce even more so than they were doing. So I think it accelerated the process. And there's a lot of people, you know, millions of people who are building nice residual income businesses in the direct selling field. Yeah, Um we just to remind our listeners, we did a previous episode on many of these direct selling companies, the industry. We called it multi-level marketing, MLM. So go back, go to visit workfromhomeshow.com and type in uh, work, um, 
multi-level marketing or MLM, and you should be able to find that episode from season one. Randy Gage, this has been a very immersive, I love interviews like this that are so deep and philosophical. The website is randygage.com. G-A-G-E is Gage, randygage.com. Anything you want to, anything else you want to promote or any final thoughts you have for our listeners? Uh, hang out. I do a, uh, uh, I actually started something new that I've been doing for a couple. I started at the start of the year doing a live stream every Saturday at 10 a.m. Eastern on the principles of prosperity free enterprise and generosity. And I call it a pro- the prosperity unchurch. <laughs> it's not a church. It's not a religion. It's a for-profit prosperity ministry where I model the behavior I'm teaching, model the lessons I'm teaching. And we just talk about, uh, do a lesson each week on some principle of prosperity or free enterprise. And uh, you can find links to it on my website. And then I rebroadcast it every Monday on my podcast and put it up every Monday night on my YouTube channel. Um, So check that out if you're looking on doing more. And uh, to connect with me, best place I really interact with people is on Twitter uh, or my blog. And I'd love to hear from people who are, I love entrepreneurs. I love people who are in the game you know, in the arena, trying to do something with their lives. Randy Gage, host of the Power Prosperity podcast, author of multiple number one best-selling books. Just type in Randy Gage on Amazon. You can find them there. The website, once again, is randygage.com. And check us out at workfromhomeshow.com if you have any questions, comments, suggestions. Hello at workfromhomeshow.com is the email address to reach us. Hello at workfromhomeshow.com. Get on our mailing list. Leave us a review on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever podcasting platform you use. Follow us on social media. We are anywhere and everywhere. And until next week, keep on working from home. Hey, thanks for listening to the Power Prosperity Podcast. Do me a favor and practice the circulation law of prosperity and tell people about Prosperity TV. So if you would, just put something up on your Tumblr, your Twitter, your Facebook, your YouTube. Uh, Let people know what you think of the Power Prosperity Podcast. Even take a screenshot of your phone and maybe post that picture. Uh, so we can build the community here at the podcast. Thanks, guys.